right, we're going to be on page 829 in the Coffee House Bible. That's Matthew chapter 4. We've got a couple of things coming up that are really relevant to what I'm about to talk about. The first one is this Tuesday we have a special prayer gathering. It, this is actually a kickoff to 40 days of prayer and fasting. Tuesday marks 40 days before Easter. And our fast begins really Tuesday. And this is from 6.30 to 7.30 up here at the gathering place Tuesday night. And then the bookend of our time of prayer and fasting together will be a Good Friday gathering. So go ahead and put those in your calendar. It won't hurt my feelings if you grab your phone and just add them right now. So this Tuesday and then Good Friday, 6.30 to 7.30. Okay. Um, I want to summarize, though, where we've been and what we're doing today for those who I'm just seeing for the first time. This is a series where I'm introducing fasting. In part one, we had an invitation to fasting. We talked about a lot of the barriers. We don't fast for a lot of reasons. Some of us, because it's so challenging, it's, maybe it's new to you. Maybe you've never been a part of a church that fasted together. Those are all good reasons. Sometimes it feels extreme. And so what we're trying to do is lower the barriers to what it would look like to fast together. And we're trying to do it in a way that everybody can. Everybody can participate. And to help you participate, we've got prayer and fasting guides. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we made 100 guides, and we thought that'll be enough for all the adults. And then after Sunday, after one week of giving prayer and fasting guides away, we had one left. We we're like, okay, we need to make a few more. So if you need a prayer and fasting guide, if you weren't here last week, they're on the table. But we've also made a prayer and fasting guide for families, for inviting little ones into our fasting together. And your fast will probably look differently than your children's fast. I hope it does. But it is a way to kind of include them in some of what you're doing. And so this is a book developed by Jesslyn Maxwell and our kids team. And what it does is it provides devotionals and guidance for family time in the next 40 days. Now, 40 days may sound extreme, but our invitation is really to fast from at least one meal a week for the next six weeks. We're trying to lower the threshold so that everybody can participate. If you want to do more, do more. The guide will kind of help you choose your fast over the next 40 days. In part one, we, we invited you to fasting. And then part two, we looked at the purpose of fasting. This was the text in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew, in Matthew 6, in Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that when you fast, not if, when you fast, he says, don't do it to be seen by other people. There's a, a secret practice of fasting that you don't do it for recognition. He's saying your motives matter. We'll talk about motives, but in our, in our Oikos group on Sunday, we were kind of processing, reflecting on our shadows. And it was, it was so cool to me to see, uh, cool is probably not the right word. Yeah. It was neat to see how each person in our group kind of had a different kind of shadow that they were concerned about with their motives when it came to fasting. Some of us, like me, I'm concerned about self-righteousness that I'm, I'm concerned about doing it to be seen by others. I'm doing it to, to be righteous and to be more righteous and like it all depends on me somehow. Other people, it was more like weight loss. You know, there's the temptation, instead of fasting for a spiritual purpose, there's fasting for this very physical purpose. Other people, it was for like work productivity purposes. Other people, maybe it's financial. I mean, if you start fasting from, you know, three to five meals a week, you'll look back at your credit card statement and you're like, I have a hundred extra dollars every week. You're like, you may want, so all of those things can be good, right? But they're not, the, they're not the real focus. They're not the real purpose. Jesus describes the reward of the Father. 
There are rewards to fasting, but the reward that I'm after is the reward of the Father. I want to hunger for Him, and I want to use hunger as a tool to do that. I want to, I want to have more intimacy and more power from the Lord. That's really our goal in our fasting together. So today, what we're going to look at is part three, last one, the freedom of fasting. But freedom has a bit of a paradox when it, when it comes to this idea. I was reading somebody, he said, if you want to understand freedom in the 21st century, like American culture, he says, you need to go back to the 60s and 70s. He says, not the 1960s, not the 1970s, the 1760s and 70s. He says, what happened in the 18th century is that happiness became idealized. Think Declaration of Independence, right? The, the pursuit of happiness. Happiness became idealized, and then in the century after that, happiness became really understood in the context of pleasure. You see, happiness and pleasure, they were different things, and now very much pleasure has... So instead of wanting the good life, we just want more good stuff in life. This kind of shift started happening culturally, and then with some significant thinkers, it, it took on the form not just of freedom and happiness, but that this required freedom to find this happiness, this pleasure. This is like Freud and him saying that basically all neurosis is the result of somebody telling you you can't, it's like limitation, oppression. And so today, most people think of freedom as something like, I can do whatever I want to do as long as I don't hurt anybody. This is, we've gotten to this place where I can do whatever I want to do as long as I don't hurt anybody. But this idea of freedom is a paradox. It can't hold together for a variety of reasons. So is, is this what real freedom is? Let me, let me ask it like this. Do our desires, if I just want to do whatever I want to do, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, do those type of desires sabotage or satisfy us? Now, obviously, some desires can be satisfied, right? You can go after something that you want, and it can be fulfilling to get it. But what we normally find with our desires is that when we get it, we just desire more. You, you satisfy one desire, and now you've got a desire for even more of that thing. The goalposts of desire keep moving so that they don't actually satisfy in a significant way. But I, let me illustrate with a couple of ways. One, think of this uh, in terms of money. Um, a couple hundred years ago, the richest man in the world was a guy named Rockefeller. And somebody asked him, they said, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. You see how desire doesn't actually have this way of being satisfied. It just creates more desire, just a little bit more. And desire itself can't be satisfied. It keeps coming back. And sometimes we even see that our desires sabotage. They not only don't satisfy, they damage. Let me give a few for instance. Anybody ever really wanted something you purchased on a credit card and then the bill comes due? And you realize once the bill comes due, the immediate pleasure of satisfying the desire now has an even greater cost that's compounding. The cost sometimes sabotages us. Credit card debt is a burdensome hole, and it's pleasure for a moment until the bill comes due. Or maybe it's a hookup on Tinder, or it's porn. The same type of desire has the same effect. It doesn't have the effect of satisfying you as you thought it would. 
it leaves you not only not satisfied fully, but still your conscience is pricked and there's this shame and there's a guilt associated with it now. And then over time, it sabotages even desire itself. So it damages even more deeply and it undermines your body's capacity to connect in meaningful ways and to practice in intimacy with a person. Like it, it's doing a lot of things, but it's not doing the thing it promises, which is satisfaction. Or consider food. In this series on fasting, food would be an appropriate reflection. Of course, food can satisfy. You are probably getting hungry and you'll go find somewhere to eat and then you won't be hungry anymore. You'll finish the food on your plate and then you'll be done. But you know that come five or six o'clock tonight, you'll start to feel it again. Desire doesn't fully satisfy. But with food, it's not only always temporary, it also has this tendency to sabotage us. We know very well that when we indulge every desire with food, it leads to undesirable outcomes. Think of weight in America. Most Americans want to eat less, not more. There's a cost. Some of you are going to take up fasting. You're going to save some money, and you're going to think, maybe this is actually the spiritual discipline that I want after all, because food is expensive. It costs a lot of money to go eat out and go to the grocery store. I was listening to a comedian named Nate Bargatze. He's one of my favorites. And he's talking about pancakes. He says, I love pancakes so much. I just love them. He says, and I never blame them. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, they make me so tired and I never blame. You know what he means? It's like, there's a physical effect that comes from what we do that we just ignore. Because when we engage the desire, it leads to undesirable outcomes in a variety of ways. And so because there's part of you that dies, this is because there's part of you that desires something more than pleasure. Let me, let me picture it like this. Let's say you're at the grocery store, you've got your shopping cart full of groceries, and you look to your left, what's on the left? Candy, just sugar, just loads of candy, and maybe magazines with like cakes and pies and maybe grill recipes, and it's just like, yeah, I want that. And then you look to your right, and what's on the right side? More, more magazines, okay, kale, yeah. <laughs> But on, on the other magazines, there's pictures of beautiful people. Some of them have their shirts off, and it's like, is that even real? Is that just Photoshopped, or is that actually how muscular that person is, or how thin that person is? There's beauty. There's fashion. It's just like, I want that too. And here you are with your shopping cart. It's like, well, you can't, you can't really have both right now, right? And so in some cases, we can't actually have either when it comes to these desires. Food is, is interesting. We desire fitness. We desire beauty. We desire health. We desire long life. We desire the respect of others. And so if you always ate what you desired, your deeper desire would be sabotaged. Our strongest desires, John Mark Comer says in his book, Live No Lies, our strongest desires are not our deepest desires. This is the paradox of freedom. You see, freedom isn't the ability to do whatever you want. Because the more we do whatever we want, the less we're able to do what we really want. Freedom with food isn't the ability to eat whatever you want. Freedom with food is also the ability to not eat whatever you want. You see, freedom is the ability to do what we really want. It's not unrestrained, it's, it's love. Freedom is more than permission. It's power. Freedom is more than permission. It's power. Freedom isn't merely the absence of restraint. It's the presence of authority. 
John Mark Comer, he says, I'm not sure any word in the Christian vocabulary has been more misunderstood than freedom. He says, philosophers, they parse out two different kinds. There's a freedom from and a freedom for. There's a negative freedom and a positive freedom. He says, it's not just the permission to choose, but the power to choose what is good. Now, let me illustrate Tim Keller in Making Sense of God. He says, imagine a man who's in his 60s. He likes to eat whatever he wants. He also loves to spend time with his grandchildren. He goes to the doctor at his annual physical, and the doctor says, well, you can no longer eat whatever you want if you want to be around to enjoy playing with your grandkids. So the question, when it comes to his freedom, the, the complexity of real life, he says, he can accept either the limits of his eating or the limits on his health. It's impossible that he will have freedom in both areas. There's not just one thing called freedom that we will either have or not have. At the level of lived life, there are numerous freedoms and no one can have them all. Keller goes on, he says, the question is, which freedom is more important? Which one is truly liberating? Real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. Does that make sense? There's going to be some things that we have to say no to so that we can say yes to the things we really want. And if we don't, you have made your choice. And it's to forfeit the thing you actually desire deepest. It's a paradox of freedom. And so I'm asking, how can we grow our power to, to do what we really want, our deepest desire? And our deepest desire isn't to have an all-you-can-eat buffet next door, right? No amens, Marcus. <laughs> the convenience, yes. CC's is great. Hear me, Marshall, general manager over there. He's good to me. But it's not my deepest desire in life. There's something that sometimes filling up on satisfaction will sabotage the things we're actually after. So how do we grow our, our actual power? Um, you see, most cultures have understood this, that there's part of us that needs to be quieted and tamed, and there's other parts that needs to be grown and cultivated. I mean, just about every culture, and not ours, but just about every culture that's ever been on, on the planet kind of understands this. And the New Testament has a way of describing this as the flesh and the spirit. The flesh and the spirit. For instance, here's Galatians 5. The Apostle Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and these two are at war with each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you hear it? Flesh and Spirit. Somehow, to grow in power, we actually need to starve the flesh and feed the spirit. What is the pathway into the starving the flesh and feeding the spirit? If you want to be free, if you want true happiness, the happiness that is not pleasure, not dopamine, but it's the abiding contentment of life in the goodness of God, the pathway to power, to true freedom, isn't found in indulgence. Freedom is found by starving the flesh and living in the spirit. And I think Jesus gives us a pretty good practice. When I see Jesus, I see a man who no one has ever been as free as him. And yet, 
we see him constantly limiting himself and what he indulges in for the sake of this freedom that he found like no one else. So today we're going to look at the practice of fasting in Matthew chapter 4 from our Lord and Rabbi, as well as his call to us as disciples to imitate him. The paradox of freedom leads us to the power of reliance. The power of reliance. So let me set the stage. This is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And in chapter 2, we know the story of Jesus' birth. He was, he was born, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, as we confess each week. In chapter 3, he is baptized, as Reed said at the table. The Lord and the Holy Spirit, as the dove descends, says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And from the baptism, the Spirit guides him into the wilderness. Let's, let's dive in. Chapter 4, verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Led by the Spirit. The Spirit is actually all over these early chapters of Matthew. The Spirit is there at the conception. It says that he is conceived by the Spirit. The Spirit is there at the baptism in Matthew 3. The Spirit descends and the voice of God says, this is my beloved Son. The Spirit is all over the story of Jesus. The Spirit is responsible for his his incarnation, his becoming human. The Spirit is responsible at his baptism to fill him, and now the Spirit is leading him. Jesus is the ideal person to look at what a Spirit-led life looks like. What does it look like? The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, this is pretty striking. The first thing the Spirit does in leading Jesus into ministry is to lead him into testing. The wilderness scene is an echo of Israel. We'll come back to the echo of Israel in a few minutes. And the temptation by the devil is also an echo there, but it's also, do you see, do you remember the story at the beginning of Scripture in Genesis? Instead of a wilderness, it's a garden, it's a paradise. And in this garden paradise, the devil comes in the form of a serpent and begins tempting. Both of these echoes are going to be in the background of our section today. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, no kidding. <laughs> After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, I was reading Piper's book on, on fasting. He says, the Son of God began his earthly ministry with a 40-day fast. This should give us pause. Why did he fast as he began his great work? It must not go unnoticed that Jesus triumphed over the great enemy of his soul in our salvation through fasting. Of all the hundreds of things Jesus might have done to fight off this tremendous threat, he is led in the Spirit to fast. He says, we owe our salvation in some measure to the fasting of Jesus. This is a remarkable tribute to fasting. Think on it. He's led into 40 days of fasting. Now, Moses was led into 40 days of fasting. Elijah was led into 40 days of fasting. As, as we said in the invitation to fasting a couple of weeks ago, the law and the prophets and the gospel all have 40-day fast. So what are we waiting on? Our invitation right now as a church is to enter into 40 days of fasting. And the reason we do this is because the early church immediately began practicing 40 days of preparation leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. 40 days of preparation, not just for the sake of not eating, but for the sake of reflecting on what Jesus has done for us and our salvation. For the sake of introspection, 
for the sake of confession of sin. And so that's what we're doing. We're, we're imitating this 40-day and 40-night fast. Again, you don't have to do 40 days and 40 nights straight. Um, I, I think God honors the smallest of steps. But after this, it says that he was hungry. There's this kind of duality here in the story where Jesus is both at his physically weakest, it seems like, and yet at his spiritually, his strongest. Somehow, as his body is totally emptied, his soul is totally filled for one of the great battles that the world has ever seen. And he alone, of every human that has ever existed, he alone wins it. He wins the battle. So I want to dive in and kind of look at what the temptation was and, and how he won. So here's the, tem- the temptation. The tempter came to him. This is, this is the slanderer. This is the Satan. He came to him and he said, if you are the son of God. Now, if you've been walking with Oikos for our first year, we dove into a series called If You Are last year. Um, it's all about the wilderness temptations from Luke chapter 4. Um, lots of good stuff there. You can go back and check our iTunes feed or YouTube. So I can't dive into all of that, but I do want you to see that this temptation is not to do something bad. It's actually an accusation against his identity. If you are the Son of God. Now, is Jesus the Son of God? Well, if, you, if you're reading in Matthew and if you're reading in Luke, there's this genealogy, for instance, in, in Luke. And it, it goes all the way from Jesus down to the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. But then it also shows us that he is literally conceived as the son of God by the Holy Spirit. And then he's baptized in the next chapter, and his baptism, this is my beloved, what? Son. He is the son. Everything in in scripture is saying, this is my son. This is God with us. He is the son of God. And then the, the accuser shows up, and he says, if you are the son of God. He attacks his identity. And in the identity comes this temptation. Tell these stones to become bread. Now, this is a weird temptation. I've never been tempted to turn stones into bread. But man, I have been tempted to indulge my appetite in ways that seem to like redefine good and evil in my own terms. I think this is the center of the temptation for Jesus. We see that in the power, the pursuit of power that Jesus is after, there's this temptation to self-reliance. This is not a new temptation. There's, there's echoes all over this story of first the fall of humanity and Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden. Do you see the echoes of Eden in this story? You see, Eve isn't tempted to do something evil. She's tempted to eat something delicious. There's, there's something that happens in Genesis chapter 3. The, the serpent comes to her and says, did God actually say? And then it says, chapter 3 verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. You see, what she was after, she wanted something delicious. She wanted something beautiful. She wanted something that could make her wise. And so she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. There's another echo here. It's not just an echo of Eden. It's an echo of Israel. 
40 days in the wilderness is an echo of 40 years in the wilderness. It's the story from Exodus chapter 16. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven. I'm going to rain bread from heaven. Manna is coming. I'm going to give you everything you need here. But the people don't respond by obeying God's just basic rules about when to gather. In chapter 16, verse 20 of Exodus, it says they did not listen to Moses. Instead, they're trying to save it. They're trying to hoard it. They're trying to overgather. They're trying to overwork for the sake of themselves. And so they go out disobeying. They, they go out on the Sabbath. They're trying to accumulate more and more and more as if God couldn't be trusted to give them their daily bread. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord's reminding him, he says, look, you have everything you need in the wilderness. Your sandals for 40 years didn't wear out. I, I gave you the clothes on your back. I gave you the food in your bellies every morning and evening. And he says, this was to teach you, Deuteronomy chapter 8, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, Israel would go on to have many more appetites that they would satisfy on their own. And so their 40 days in the wilderness ended up being 40 years of testing. But in none of these cases is the temptation to do evil. It's not that evil is tempted to eat something poisonous. It's not that Israel was tempted to do something dangerous. It's not that Jesus was tempted. Uh, I mean, how evil is bread? Bread is good. <laughs> Jesus taught his people to pray daily. This, give us today our daily bread. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus. How? By eating bread. Bread is not the evil thing here. So what is? I think it's the temptation to self-reliance. You see, even the desires that are associated with these things aren't bad. God desired for Adam and Eve to be like him. That's exactly how he made them, in his image and in his likeness. He wanted to give them wisdom. He wanted to give them beauty. He wanted to fill their bellies, but he wanted to do it in his terms, not on theirs. In a God-reliance, not on a self-reliance. God wanted Israel to enjoy the plenty. The, the bread in the morning, the quail in the evening. He, he was leading them into a land that was filled with milk and honey. He wanted them to enjoy abundance. That was not the problem. The problem is that they redefined and began relying on self. St. Ignatius, he says, sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants is our deepest happiness. You see, sometimes the greatest adversary to the love of God are not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites, Piper says, are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. You see, food isn't the real focus, even though food is at the center of all three stories. The fall of humanity and the fall of Israel and the test of Jesus all come down to whether or not they cannot eat. It's, it's so striking that the greatest temptations that the world has known and that set the shape of, of our whole life, all three are about a person's standing or falling in their power to not eat. So, Two failed. How does Jesus fare? Of course, you, you know the end. We see here 
in Jesus' response a practice for the resistance of self-reliance. It starts with this, verse 4. Jesus answered. I love this. I think this is really important. Instead of passively letting the tempter accuse him in his identity and tempt him to undermine his trust in God, he answered. He answered. It seems like he answered out loud. He responded to push back the lies of the evil one, and he responded with scripture. It is written. Now, on, on, whenever we're looking at like Matthew 4 in the wilderness and we see it is written, I've read this with, with people in their 20s and 30s who are kind of tired of hearing about it is written, go back to scripture. It's, it's almost like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need to memorize scripture like a good Bible school boy, yeah. But can I just say that is not how believers for thousands of years have read this story. You see, the desert fathers and mothers, these are people who left the indulgences and the delicacies of their world. They, they, they practiced self-denial. They left everything to go practice discipleship to Jesus in the wilderness. And what they found in this text wasn't some, yeah, that would be nice. Uh, how silly. We're all grown-ups now, though. I have better things to do with my time. They found life and death in Scripture. They found the resources for pushing back spiritual warfare. They didn't, they didn't just laugh off at the, the concept of memorizing Scripture. They dove into Scripture because they knew it was their shield and it was their sword. It is written. Jesus, he, he was the one responding. And his response is not only pointing to Scripture, it's about Scripture. So we should, we should be very careful before we just push off at Scripture as if it's not important. It isn't something essential to our discipleship. Okay, passion, passion, uh, stepping into this now, okay? Soapbox over. <laughs> Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live on bread alone. Now, Jesus, of course, hadn't been eating bread for 40 days and 40 nights. He's not living on bread, so how is he living? He seems to be sustained, Dallas Willard says, by the energy of God. There's something. It's, it's not like in physical matter, Willard says. It's some kind of spiritual reservoir that the Lord is pouring into this man as he's in the wilderness. He's, he's being strengthened. He's being formed through this because Jesus knew, think of this, you know, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and then they all died. The whole generation died except Joshua and Caleb. But Jesus knew that the Israelites did not die of hunger. They died of distrust. They died with full bellies, but they died in the, in the wilderness. They could not reach the promised land. And it's, God gave them everything they needed, and the reason they died was distrust. You see, fasting is fundamentally the affirmation of the word of God. It's saying, God, you are enough. I want to be filled by you. His word, his word to me is this reality that becomes in fasting physical sustenance to my needy body. We see this elsewhere in the ministry of Jesus, John 4. John 4, he's talking to the Samaritan woman, and he, he's, he's been hungry. They don't have anything to eat or drink, and his disciples come back with food from the town. And they say, you want some food? And he says, oh, I have some food you don't know about. And they're like, okay, cool. And then he says, this is, this is my food. 
to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus is feeding on something differently than what I am. He's feeding on it in a real way. He's feeding on it instead of feeding on food and drink. Now, yes, food and drink is good. We, we see, we remember bread. Jesus came eating and drinking. We feast together. In fact, next month's series, I should say April's series, is about feasting together. Yes, yes to food. But Jesus understood that when you only say yes, you're saying no to some other things. But by saying no to food, you end up saying yes to the freedom that you desire. Once more, Willard. He says, for Jesus, the wilderness was the place of solitude and deprivation. And it was actually the place of strength and of strengthening our Lord. That's why the Spirit led him there. As he would lead us there to ensure that Christ was in the best possible condition for the trial. In that desert solitude, Jesus fasted for more than a month. Then and not before, Satan was allowed to approach him with his glittering proposals of bread, notoriety, and power. And only then, in fasting for 40 days, only then was Jesus at the height of his strength. The desert was his fortress, his place of power. You see, Jesus didn't become weaker in fasting. He became hungrier. But Jesus became stronger in fasting. So I think Jesus is imi- in Jesus' invitation to practice this um, continues on throughout the Gospels. So in in Matthew 4, we see that Jesus himself fasted. In Matthew 6, he says, when you fast, here's how I want you to do it. In Matthew 9, he says, when I'm taken away, then my disciples will fast. I think there's an expectation that his disciples will fast during this church age. But this also resonates with just his basic call of discipleship. I'm going to move pretty quickly through this section in Matthew 16. But it says, this is after he's identified as the Christ, the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. He would suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I saw one commentator. He says, this is unheard of. Disciples do not, in this culture, rebuke their rabbis. This is out of line. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And so he's saying that there's actually a pathway of discipleship that doesn't include suffering. The pathway of discipleship doesn't include self-denial. The pathway is just through indulgence. Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. One commentator says that Peter is now saying the lines of Satan. He's he's saying his lines for him. He says, you are a stumbling block. You're a rock. Well, now you're the rock of stumbling. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple. Can I just pause there and say, does anybody here want to be his disciple? Listen up, he's saying, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. He's saying, I am journeying to Jerusalem. I am journeying to a cross. I am journeying through suffering and through self-denial. So his invitation is one of imitation. The disciple has to be like his teacher. 
And this is the way of Jesus, he says. For, this is the reason why, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. This word life is the word suke. It's the word soul. It's, it's the self. It's where we get our word psychology. The, it's, if you want yourself, if you want your life, if you want your soul, lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will find it. You see, the power of reliance is something that Jesus actually wants to share with the people who follow him. You want to be my disciple? He says, I've got the pathway to power. I have the life you're looking for. There is happiness and real freedom, but it's not found through the ways of the world. Instead, it's found in the call of self-denial. And I think at the heart of this call of self-denial is a practice that is often neglected, especially in the American church, is the practice of fasting. So let's get practical one more time with the practice of fasting. We talked about the paradox of freedom, talked about the power of reliance, and now the practice of fasting. I want to invite you to 40 days of prayer and fasting with us. 40 days. Now, it's a 40-day it's a journey, not all at once, but it's a 40-day journey of reflection, of introspection. It's a 40-day journey where we're trying to push down our hunger for the sake of deeper hunger for God, where we want to replace the gift with the giver himself. And so this call of self-denial is to give up food, to practice restraint, to give in to self-denial, and to imitate the way of Jesus. Our goal here isn't just fasting. It's really the goal of Jesus. It's, it's being with him. It's imitating him. It's doing what he did. It's walking with him on the road to Calvary. And that's why we're doing it during this 40-day season. The 40 days leading up to Easter. Christians for a long time have practiced this, and Christians all over the world, if you read some of the early church fathers, they just take it as a given that basically all Christians will fast during what we now call Lent, this, this season. John Calvin, he's, he says that with a full stomach, our mind is not so lifted up to God. And so instead, he says we need to empty our stomach so that fasting can accompany our prayers, that we can find him. But there is a, a danger to this discipline, and I don't want to kind of hide this from you. The New Testament uh, makes clear that fasting is a Christian liberty, not a law, which is why I continue to use the language of invitation rather than obligation. You don't have to do this. Scripture never teaches that you have to do this. Fasting is a Christian liberty. Paul over and over says it's not about what you eat and what you drink. He says, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do it to the glory of God. He says, don't let anybody pass judgment on you for what you eat or for what you don't eat. He, it's, it's not like uncommon. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he talks about it again in Colossians chapter 2. He says, some people lean into disciplines as if discipline is the goal. He says, discipline isn't the goal, Jesus is. He says, those things are shadows. Jesus is the substance. So if you're going to fast, you have to do it in a way that doesn't embrace this as the thing itself. This can be misleading. There are dangers here, but there are real benefits to this call of discipleship. The danger of eating is that we fall in love with a gift. The danger of fasting is that we belittle the gift. God wants us to enjoy good food. And so our recommendation during this 40-day season is to continue to eat on Saturdays and Sundays. This is what the early church did. You continue to fast, continue to eat on Saturdays and Sundays. Don't let those be your fast days. So what do we do? If there's danger on either side, if there's danger on eating or danger in fasting, what do we do? Well, I want to do what Jesus did. <laughs> and Jesus fasted. You know, I want to do what the apostles did. 
Paul may have warned against fasting, but his practice interprets his statements. Paul fasted. He says, I'm in fastings often in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, I buffet my body. I bring it into subjection so that it, and when it all is said and done, he says that I will not become disqualified. Paul, Dallas Willard says, was a summa cum laude graduate of the school of self-denial. And so you can't hear him saying, don't fast. He himself was constantly in fasting. But there's, there's a freedom here. There's a freedom to do it. But more so, there's a freedom available to us that is the happiness that we're looking for. Let me kind of close with just some reflections on the power of what might happen if we did fast. Thomas Ryan, in his book, The Sacred Art of Fasting, he says, the tendency is to think that God will love us if we change. But God loves us so that we can change. Penitential practices and disciplines like fasting enable us to appropriate and make real in our lives the freedom given through grace. Your fasting is not a way of earning more favor with God. It's not even a way of becoming more like God. It's actually a way of responding to our desperate need for more of God. Part of this, I think, to do this well with the dangers in mind is to see your shadows. Your motives matter. I, I mentioned some of these at the beginning. Motives like weight loss and work productivity and self-righteousness and maybe financial motives, they may all be part of this. But may our motives be truly hungering for God. A young couple, they asked me, should I tell my spouse? You know, I don't want to do this to be seen by others. Should I tell my spouse? And I said, well, yeah, you share everything. And it's going to come up, right? If you sit down, the two of you, for dinner and one of you is not eating, it's, it's going to be really obvious. But at the same time, if you're dating, you know, it may not be the best thing to talk a lot about your fast. And here's why. You see, in dating, there's a lot of performing that is still happening. In marriage, there's very little that's still happening. Did you just say amen? Hey. And so, seek the Lord on if fasting, if fasting does more damage to your discipleship, then don't do it. But if fasting is an opportunity to deepen your discipleship, then would you come along on this journey? You see, fasting is a gateway to freedom. It uses food as the gate. Now, it, it goes beyond food though, right? Because the idea is by practicing with food, it can become real in all of these other areas. It turns our bodies into an ally in the fight against the devil rather than an adversary. The body becomes a tool for helping us grow in our self-denial. More than any other discipline, Richard Foster says, fasting reveals the things that control us. And so by practicing fasting, we begin to strengthen new muscles that most of us don't ever touch. These muscles of denial, the muscles of hunger and hungering for God, the muscles of wanting something and saying no for the sake of prayer. But of course, this won't be easy. One author, he says, when you begin fasting, it's common to feel sad, even anxious, or just plain hangry. With regular practice, these feelings mostly go away and are replaced by joy, contentment, and a sense of intimacy with God. There's spiritual power, but it takes a while to wean your soul off its addiction to the Western gods of pleasure 
instant gratification and sensory appetites, the first thing it normally does is reveal where you are still in bondage. So, a couple of things as we kind of wrap up this series. You need to grab a guide today if you don't already have one. Grab your family guide, one per family. There's enough handouts in there for each, each child. And then number two, finalize your fast by Tuesday if you can. That's the 40 days of the beginning of our 40-day journey. And then I'll see you at the prayer gathering on Tuesday night, 6.30. Now, we're not going to have a big feast on Tuesday night, right? We're gonna, now, you, you may still be eating on Tuesday. That's fine. Um, and we're not going to be comparing a lot of what we're doing, but we are going to be trying to ask about what the Lord is doing. Does that make sense? To ask not about what we're doing, but ask what the Lord is doing. Let me, let me close. Last, last reflection here. Has anyone ever been as free as Jesus? You see, Jesus knew who he was. He lived his identity with clarity and authority. One theologian, he says, Jesus confronts us as the most liberated man who ever lived. Identity? Jesus became a man of power and freedom. In the wilderness, the tempter himself came to Jesus and said, if you are the son of God. But Jesus had the power to say, I know who I am. His identity was secure. And at the end of this temptation sequence, he says, be gone, Satan. And he obeyed him. There's another story. Not only identity, but clarity. We looked at it in Matthew 16. He had the clarity of his calling. He knew not only who he was, but where he was going. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to the cross. And somebody comes along and says, no, no, there's an easier way. You don't have to do it like that. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Because he not only had a sense of who he was, he had a sense of where he was going. That's freedom. No one was getting him off track. One more story. I didn't talk about this one. It's soon after Matthew 16. He goes up on the mountain transfiguration and he comes down. And his disciples are there, and they're like, Jesus, Jesus, so glad you're here. We've been trying to cast out this demon, and we weren't able to. Why couldn't we? He says, you faithless generation. He says, some, some demons can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. See, there's a power that you're not tapping into that I want for you. He had an identity that was so secure. He had a clarity about where he was going and he had authority. I think that's freedom. See, this is the one who breaks the paradox. This is the one who's able to do what he really wants to do. And it is one through prayer and fasting. Would you stand? I want to pray a blessing over us as we go. Holy God, would you create a hunger in us for more of you? May the hunger in our bellies for the next 40 days drive us to prayer and to confession and drive us to you.
And Lord, as we seek you, would you fill us up with power? Would you fill us up with the freedom that we long for? Would you fill us up with the happiness that looks like the combination of authority and love? For your kingdom and glory, in the name of our King Jesus, amen.